UFOs and Mikes on Mars. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A highly anticipated report from the Pentagon on Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAPs, is due out later this month. Some UAPs are often called UFOs, and the news of such government investigations has garnered mainstream public interest. Earlier this month, NASA's new administrator Bill Nelson signaled the space agency's interest in the matter. Nelson asked NASA's science mission directorate to investigate UAPs. We'll speak with Administrator Nelson about his decision to investigate this phenomenon and how NASA can help shed light on UAPs. Then, a microphone on Mars is capturing fascinating sounds of the planet. We'll speak with Andy Bellavia of Knowles, which developed the tech about how a tiny hearing aid microphone is beaming back big sounds of the red planet. And we'll debut a new segment on the show called Shooting Stars, which profiles launch and astrophotographers as they capture images of exploration. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. UFOs, or more officially known as UAPs, hit the mainstream back in 2017 after a New York Times article reported on a Pentagon program that for years investigated unidentified flying objects. A video released by the Department of Defense around the same time, taken in 2004, shows U.S. Navy pilots encountering an unknown object. Since the New York Times reporting, lawmakers have called for more transparency about official investigations into the aerial phenomenon. An appropriations bill signed by then-President Donald Trump asked the DOD to release a report on what the government knows about UFOs, and that report is due later this month. But the DOD isn't the only agency interested in UFOs and UAPs. NASA says it's also looking into the matter. I spoke with NASA's administrator Bill Nelson about why his agency is investigating the phenomenon and what he hopes to learn. I began by asking Nelson why NASA is joining this investigation now. Because people want to know. And NASA is the science agency. So I've asked our scientists... Uh, from a standpoint of science, uh, if they can come up with any explanations. Uh, when I was in the Senate and a member of the Armed Services Committee, I had that uh, briefing that you have seen the uh, videos from the Navy pilots uh, chasing that phenomena. Mm-hmm. I've talked to those Navy pilots and uh, they know that they saw something. Mm-hmm. And well, I've asked our scientists here at NASA if they'll see if they can help us have any understanding of something that we do not know what it is. Mm-hmm. I, I spoke with some UFO researchers uh, ahead of this interview, and they mentioned to me that NASA hasn't picked up something like this since the Carter administration. Um, and when that happened, um, they kind of brushed it off and said there was nothing to see here. Um, why do you think now is the time for NASA to pick this up? And, and you know, is your experience in the, the Senate and hearing that testimony, did that weigh heavily into this decision? So if your question is, why is NASA doing it now? 
Uh, It's because I believe uh, the American people want to know Mm -hmm. everything that we can find out. And so what better way than to go to the experts and say, can you explain this from a scientific point of view? And, And how much of your experience on that committee and hearing the testimony from those Navy pilots weighed in on this decision to ask your, ask your scientists to do this? Well, they know, those pilots know that they saw something and they tracked it. And then suddenly it would move from low altitude to high altitude in an instant. So what is this phenomenon? I want to know, and I think the American people want to know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have an explanation now. There are multiple agencies that are looking into this, including the Pentagon. Has there been a formal relationship established between NASA and, and these other agencies to do this? Or are you kind of going at this independently? I am sure in the future that there will be a coordinated effort. Now, for years, NASA has been involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. This is a program uh, some 15, 17 years old, uh, and uh, we're looking into deep space with uh, some of our spacecraft, uh, with some of our earthbound telescopes. Uh, We are now in the new telescope that is going to be launched in November. Uh, We'll be looking back to the very origins of uh, the mission of life in the universe, Uh, our missions to the planets, uh, to Venus, uh, to the moons of Jupiter, uh, already what uh, we're doing on Mars with Perseverance. Uh, All of those things are trying to bring uh, more information about the possibility of life. Mm And uh, that combined with searching the heavens for radio signals or anything on the electromagnetic spectrum that would indicate that it came from an intelligent form of life. All of this has been happening for years at NASA. Now, let's see if we have any further explanation about what those Navy pilots saw. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about how that process will work? Um, you know, you've you've said that this is in the science mission directorate. Um, is there someone in charge? Has there been a task force established? What's the path forward for this? I have asked this of our science mission directorate director, uh, and Dr. Zerbukin is uh, having those conversations with his scientists now. And, and what do you expect we'll find? <laughs> Have you thought about what, what this could uncover? I don't know what we will find. But I know that those Navy pilots know that they saw something and it can't be explained. What about the optics of this? I mean, UFO research and, and you know, reports of this stuff has often been brushed aside. Um, but now it's it's more mainstream. It's being taken seriously by these agencies. And now with NASA looking into it, I mean, does this legitimize uh, the UFO community and those that think that there is something out there? Well, we don't know if it's a a UFO or if it's a phenomenon uh, having to do with some uh, terrestrial 
organization or government uh, that would suddenly have a new kind of technology. But uh, let's hope uh, some of our enemies don't have this kind of technology because it was rather awesome what the Navy pilots saw. And, and how much of that will, will you be looking into, or is that something that another organization like the Pentagon um, or, or the military would have to tackle? I mean, are, are you looking to see if this could be terrestrial technology as well? I think uh, there will be a whole-of-government approach trying to understand this phenomenon. And I think that's been going on for years in the Pentagon. That was NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. I'll have more reporting on NASA's role in the UAP investigation later this week on WMFE. You can find all of our coverage online at WMFE.org space. Photos of distant stars, shots of black holes, and up-close rocket launches all catch our attention. And in a new segment we're debuting today, Shooting Stars, WMFE's Randy Vuxta talks with the people behind the camera. For our first installment, Vuxta spoke with Next Horizons spaceflight content manager Matt Cutshaw, who captures photos of rockets leaving the planet from Florida's space coast. You cover rocket launches by SpaceX and NASA. What does a launch day not only look like for you, but also your team? So I live in Orlando, so it's about an hour drive for me. Um, So it goes me driving to the base, getting getting checked in, and then we get to the pad. We um, once we put our cameras down at the pad, we make sure obviously all of our settings are good, everything's good to go. uh, See where you're going to place it, make sure everything's firing off the way that does, and then you leave, and then you have to come back usually the next day um, to go and actually pick up your cameras and see it's basically like Christmas time, seeing if whether you got any images or not. What difficulties have you had to face while shooting rockets? So many things to, to consider. Is your cameras in focus? Did you put your hand warmers on? Is your sound trigger going to trigger? Uh, we've had this several times where we've put, you know, cameras down at the pad and, and you come back and you don't get nothing. Either the camera was firing constantly because it was raining or your battery died or your myops just didn't trigger. So so we try to try to put down more than one. You have a photo of a rocket launching where the flames are creating these clouds of smoke resembling storm clouds. The smoke appears to spread onto the camera as if taken a second later, this photo would only be the smoke. Can you go into detail about how you got that shot so close to the rocket? Yep. Um, so when we get to the pad, uh, we are um, given certain areas where we can um, put our cameras down. And depending on the kind of shot that you're going for, uh, you either have to be zoomed in or zoomed out. Um, so basically, as soon as the camera starts firing, it takes a series of photos and that's one of the one of the photos that I, I usually like to to um, post is uh, the smoke, just just like you're talking about, because it kind of shows the um, the dynamics of how the rocket is launching and the after effects. Because sometimes you get a lot of really cool detail in that in the flames and the smoke. You know, how do you avoid any damage to your equipment, like that smoke going onto your cameras, or maybe any lenses burning from the heat of the flames? A lesson learned, don't put your camera near the flame trench. 
that's the first and foremost. Um, a lot of guys just use bags and stuff on their cameras. I personally don't like to do that because I've spent a lot of money on this equipment and I can't really afford to be putting cam- new brand new cameras out there all the time. So I actually put my cameras in, uh, in boxes. I use uh, like like Tupperware boxes, like shoe boxes, um, and I just cut the hole in the front and then I put my uh, hand warmer and everything inside the box itself. I usually put like some uh, heat shield around it to kind of help protect it from the heat as well. Um, and as soon as the rocket goes off, obviously the the sound is so loud that it just you know fires off your camera no matter what. But yeah, I put my cameras in boxes. Any advice you would give to new photographers who are starting to shoot shuttle launches? My best advice is just keep going for it. I mean, the um, yeah, unfortunately, with with the you know launches, you know, the cadence and everything picking up, you know, a lot of more people are interested in. Some people would say that it is getting a lot saturated, and it is. But you have to just keep keep doing it. You know, you have to keep doing it. And I just like I tell everybody, quality over quantity. You know what I mean? Just take pride in your work. You know, if you don't think it's a good photo, then don't post it. Be sure to follow us on social media to see Matt's work later this week and hear more from that interview. We're on Instagram and Twitter at AWTY Space. Still to come, the tiny microphone beaming back big sounds from Mars. That's ahead when Are We There Yet continues. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. A microphone on Mars is capturing fascinating sounds of the planet. It was installed on the SuperCam instrument, and its purpose is to listen as the SuperCam zaps rocks to determine what those rocks are made of. This tiny microphone was designed for hearing aids, but it's captured Martian winds and the sounds of NASA's Ingenuity helicopter flying on the Red Planet. Andy Bellavia is with Knowles, the company that developed the tech. He joins us now to talk about the long legacy of microphones in space. Andy, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast today. So tell me a bit about this microphone. It's 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 on the SuperCam instrument, and it was developed to listen to these laser ticks, right? Tell me a bit about the microphone. Yeah, it's interesting. The microphone has a long history, and, and probably I should step back a little bit and and in, in describe why the microphone was invented in the first place. Uh, our company's founder, Hugh Knowles, when the transistor was invented, saw immediately the application to miniaturize hearing aids. Uh, in his day, if you think, for example, uh, uh, the early Rocky movies, Rocky had the coach, Mickey, uh, played by Burgess Meredith, and he had that old-style hearing aid where he had a big belt unit and a wire running up to his ear. Well, with miniature transistors, miniature transistors, you had the possibility of getting the hearing aids up on the face, but would also take high reliability and robust sub-miniature microphones and speakers, and that's what Hunos concentrated on. And so after he developed those, really those same characteristics uh, would come to appeal to NASA when they were also required to provide communications on very miniature basis. Uh, and actually, our first application for NASA was for the Apollo missions. They needed uh, a smaller-than-normal headset for the Apollo missions that would fit under the headgear and the helmet of the astronauts. And the headset was built by a company called Plantronics, which is now Poly. But NASA needed a subminiature high-performance microphone element to go inside the gooseneck of that headset. And uh, so NASA approached Knowles, and it's actually funny, there's a... a 
biography of Hugh Knowles written by a woman named Susan Goodwillie, and she told how NASA required a test to verify that the mic could survive 50 Gs. Well, Knowles actually had to build special equipment to test that low. They were normally verifying their standard hearing aid mics to 2,000 Gs, so it's perfect fit for NASA. And, and thus, you know, Neil Armstrong's famous words came out of a Knowles microphone through that headset. Why? Why? I mean, was it just because of the of the size? Is why they went with a, a microphone like this using this hearing aid technology? I'm, I'm curious to know why they even approached Knowles in the first place. Exactly that. It was the size because Knowles was making the smallest, most high performance microphones possible to get them in hearing aids that you could wear in your ear. Gotcha. So, so how do we go from um, you know recording Neil Armstrong's famous words? Uh, from the lunar surface to hearing sounds on Mars. I mean, why was this microphone selected for the Perseverance uh, mission? Well, it actually started more than 20 years ago with Carl Sagan. He was one of the founders of the Planetary Society. And he campaigned with NASA to get a microphone on a Mars lander strictly so that people could hear the sounds of Mars. He actually wrote a letter uh, to NASA in 1996 that said, and I quote him from the Planetary Society website, even if only a few minutes of Martian sounds are recorded from this first experiment, the public interest will be high and the opportunity for science exploration real. So that was 1996, and it actually went on the Mars Polar Lander in 1999 strictly for that purpose, but unfortunately the Polar Lander crashed. But the microphone that was designed in at that time uh, a very high-performance, high-sensitivity hearing aid microphone uh, designed and actually by an engineer at Knowles named Tim Wickstrom, who is still working for Knowles today and hugely excited that 20 years later, uh, the microphone that he worked with NASA on originally is now actually on Mars and working. But they chose it because of the small size, high sensitivity, and also it was able to withstand the high radiation and the extreme temperatures on Mars. Now, it, it ended up, uh, because that mission failed, it ended up being selected again for the Netlander, which that mission was canceled, and then on the Phoenix Lander in 2008. But the greater system that incorporated the mic of the Phoenix Lander had some problems, and so they were forced to leave it turned off the whole time. And so then we take ourselves all the way to 2021 with Perseverance, where finally it's landed on the planet and is performing well. Now, in exchange for that long wait, the microphone is actually doing science rather than just there so people could listen to the sounds of Mars. But the mic having, having been space qualified once was just carried over through all those missions. And so it's the same microphone that was originally specified for the Polar Lander was selected by the uh, French agency ISAE Super Aero who built the SuperCam. Uh, they selected the same microphone because it was already proven. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it, the, the thought was because it's a part of this SuperCam mission and it's there for science, it might not even pick up these sounds of Mars. So, I mean, ex explain why hearing things on Mars is, is perceived as such a challenge. Sound obviously operates differently on this planet. Why is that, and, and what's the challenge to a microphone manufacturer like yourself? So the main reason is because the atmosphere is very thin on Mars, and so sound won't propagate nearly as well. Uh, and actually, in the press conference that uh, 
the uh, NASA and uh, associated agencies had when they announced the first tests of SuperCam. They explained how even two people standing six feet apart wouldn't be able to talk to each other because of the thin atmosphere. I mean, apart from the lack of oxygen, <laughs> the fact that it's so thin that the you know the, the the sound doesn't propagate very well. So an extremely highly sensitive microphone was required. And and it's interesting because they anticipated being able to hear the sounds of Mars and they knew they would hear the sound of the laser. And, and we can talk about how the microphone contributes to the science. But the really amazing thing was, was on the fourth Ingenuity helicopter flight, they used the microphone to listen and picked up the sound of the rotor blades while it was in flight. And David Mimoon, the project leader for the microphone system at ISAE, he actually expressed surprise that the mic was able to hear the helicopter from so far away. But that's because of the extreme sensitivity of the microphone. And and I have to add that this is an off-the-shelf microphone. You could you could take out your credit card and buy one in small quantities for about fifteen dollars this very day. Nothing special about that microphone other than the application it was originally designed for, hearing aids. Uh, also suits this application on Mars. Yeah, it might be cheap to get the microphone, but the ride to another planet is what's going to cost you a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm, I'm willing to go in advance to replace it if necessary. <laughs> so, I mean, so you weren't expecting it. You're hearing this sound. I mean, what is it gotta, what is it like for you, for someone who works with this product, to be able to hear these sounds that it's picking up. I mean, we're hearing winds from Jezero Crater. We're hearing the rotor blades of, of the Ingenuity rover. That's got to be incredible, right? It it was amazing, really. I I, I was tuning into all of it. When they, when they had the uh, press conference and played the very first sounds, they did it on the first day. They hadn't even unfurled SuperCam yet. So it was still stowed away, and they turned on the mic and still were able to get the sounds of Mars. What a thrill that was. What a thrill that was. And, and seeing and hearing the helicopter in flight was amazing. It's an off-the-shelf product. I mean, is there anything that you're learning from this mission that you can bring back here and improve this technology for, you know, for hearing health or, or for next-generation hearing aid microphones? I mean, is that part of the process at all? Well, it actually was part of the process because this microphone is an older model, actually. You know, again, it had been specified as early as 2008. Uh, and, and hearing aid microphones have advanced considerably since then. This particular microphone actually isn't used in hearing aids anymore uh, because smaller ones with the kind of performance necessary for hearing aids have already been developed. Uh, you, for example, you probably know about the MEMS microphone. Uh, it's a newer style, small microphones, originally developed for mobile phones and actually invented by Knowles. Uh, that microphone now, you know, is, is also used, a special high sensitivity version of it's also used in hearing aids today. So smaller size, very low power consumption and good performance. So we actually have over that intervening 20 years been improving and improving the design of the hearing aid microphones so that hearing impaired people can have a better quality of life and hear better under more challenging circumstances. Mm -hmm. And tell me a little bit about, I know you said this is an older model on the SuperCam, but when you say hearing aid microphone, I'm thinking very, very small. How, How small is this microphone to pick up these big sounds that it's doing? It's a few millimeters square. So it's tiny. It's tiny. It's tiny, and the newer models are even tinier still, but this one's quite small. And um, 
you know, it's it's although it's not used in hearing aids today, there's some other really interesting applications where such a high sensitivity and robust mic are used. Uh, for example, it's used in a military gunshot detection system, which uses an array of them, and from the from the uh, shock wave of a bullet passing by. Uh, that microphone array and the software that goes with it can actually detect a direction the bullet came from. So it, it has a good military use, and it's using a lot of research, too. Uh, for example, it'll extend into high ultrasonic frequencies, so it's often used for bat detection, both for scientific purposes but also more practical ones. Uh, they're mounted on the nacelles of wind turbines, and if they detect when bats are migrating, if they're migrating through the area where the wind farm is, they'll turn off the turbines, so it's not to harm the bats. It's such a fascinating, you, like <laughs> this is a, a hearing aid microphone that is picking up sounds on Mars, but also picking up sounds of bullets and bats. Like the, <laughs> it's it's really like a, a really interesting use case for this technology, right? It is actually, and maybe one of the most relevant ones is I just read a research report. Uh, on a group who built a prototype system for assessing the ripeness of apples, and they're using a very similar system to SuperCam, where they use a laser and then they they pick up acoustically what's coming off the apple, and they can determine the ripeness of an apple, uh, both visually and with a laser system. So the idea being eventually in production, they could sort apples. Um, Andy, obviously it's on SuperCam. This This hardware is for science, but we've seen just how absolutely excited people have been to hear the sounds of Mars. There have been people advocating for microphones, as you mentioned earlier in a conversation um, on these Martian missions. Um, but seeing the success of, of, of this particular microphone on Perseverance, um, can, can we see microphones on, on future spacecraft? I mean, is this something that you think will be added on the base model of, of your next rover that's going to another planet or someplace else? Well, I don't see why not because of the scientific contribution. Now, in that in that press conference, it was explained that, and this was Naomi Murdoch again, uh, she talked about how the laser can determine the composition of a material, but there's a certain limit because, and she used the example of chalk and marble, uh, if you do the laser spectroscopy on chalk and marble, you'll get the same sound sig- or the same signature coming back, and yet you want to know if it's chalk versus marble. And so, without the acoustic signature of the laser blast, you cannot discriminate between them. But the hardness of the material can be told by the acoustics, and so therefore, the combination of the laser and the microphone. Can de- can determine the material more finely than the laser alone, and so I don't know why you wouldn't do that in in other space missions in which you're going to do laser spectroscopy, provided there's an atmosphere to work with. Mm-hmm. Well, as a radio guy, you don't have to convince me on the importance of microphones. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the scientific community sees the importance of this and the public relations and, and public excitement that this microphone is bringing is just incredible. We've been speaking with Andy Bellavia. He's the director of market development for Hearing Health Tech at Knowles. Andy, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. You can also stay connected to this show on social media. Give our Facebook page a like. Just search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. And again, we're on Twitter and Instagram at AWTY Space. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week is from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Randy Vuxta. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.